Welcome back, everyone. This is Ron Small on the Spotcast, which you can find at either swayproductions.com or on iTunes. Today, I interviewed commercial director and author of the very informative book, 30 Second Storyteller, Thomas Richter. You can find his work and a link to purchase the book on his website, thomasrichter.net. You can also find some of his work on boxerfilms.net, which is the production company that reps Thomas in the U.S. Before we get to Thomas, a couple quick housekeeping notes. I got a lot of interesting responses from the first two podcasts I did. I, uh, I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen and write in. And I got some emails from people asking for more information on my background and a couple questions in that regard. I will get to those probably next time. This interview went fairly long, so I don't want to spend too much time on this intro. On to Thomas Richter, who is an award-winning commercial director who wrote a pivotal book in my life called The 30-Second Storyteller. In it, he goes into great detail on how one should go about putting together their spec reel, which, in case you weren't aware, is a, a series of commercials you make for existing products. You do them for the purpose of showing that you can put together professionally made commercials. Anyway, he goes into that, how to go about getting your reel to production companies, what you do when you're signed, the conference calls, working with an agency, the creative process of putting together a treatment, and on and on. This interview is very much focused on the practical steps you should take if you're interested in pursuing a career as a commercial director. It's also about the business of commercial production, the budgets, the changing climate of media consumption, keeping your work fresh, and more. Again, you can find Thomas Richter's work at his website, thomasrichter.net, and here's the interview. Your book, The 30-Second Storyteller, is one of the few resources I found on the process of going about getting into directing commercials. It really helped me a couple years ago when I was starting to pursue commercial production. Uh, there, there isn't really a lot of information out there about uh, directing or producing commercials. To me, it, it, it always felt like the, the industry is a bit insulated. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, why do you think that is? I definitely agree with that. That was one of the main reasons why I set out to write the book in the, in the first place. Uh, I went to, as you probably know, to Art Center, and they have a, you know a pretty strong focus on directing commercials. But in terms of literature, there's very little out there. And once I made it out into the real world from, from college and film school, what I discovered is that there's still a lot that you don't learn in film school, even at such a focused school as Art Center, where you know, a lot of commercial directors come out of. Uh, so the real world is different from, you know, from theory, obviously. And, and no one was a really, you know, no one really told us what it's really going to be like. And so that's one of the main reasons why, why I decided to go and write the book. So what is it that initially drew you into, into commercial directing? Uh, you know, I came to Art Center wanting to be a storyteller, a filmmaker, like, you know, so many of us. Um, wanted to make movies and, uh, uh, you know, the like. And at the time I was there, it was sort of the, um, I'm going to call it the, the end of the heyday of uh, the Art Center alumni that had just, just come out. Not their heyday, but in terms of the school, you know, people like Michael Bay and Tarsem and Zack Snyder, they, they all had just graduated not too long ago, and they were sort of, the you know the superstars the alumni that everyone talked about and their their echoes reverberated you know through the hallways at school 
uh, everything was being compared to what you know Tarsem did and what Michael Bay did, and that was just the way it was. And they were hitting it big at that time. They were really you know getting not only music videos and commercials, but they were starting to get uh, you know movies. So it, it became sort of um, an avenue for us, or, you know, an, or, an, or an open path that you said, okay, you can, you can make movies, but a good way to get in now is through music videos and commercials. Cause that has not always been the case. There, there was a time when commercial directors weren't allowed to get anywhere close to the movies. And, and then, you know, people like Ridley Scott, for example, kind of opened that up, but then, uh, for a long time, once they made it, there was this long period of time where, again, the, the worlds were very separated. Um, and then it was really, you know, Michael Bay deserves a lot of credit for that. He was really one of those people who, who pried open the door again, and all of a sudden it became hip and cool to hire a commercial director and a music video director to, uh, to make a movie because of the new visual look that you saw in things like, you know, 300 and and the cell, that sort of look that movies didn't have before. So uh, it, 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 became, it became the new path for a lot of us at school where you could say, okay, make a commercial reel, you know, shoot three or four spots. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be cheaper probably than shooting, you know, a, a full-on uh, feature. And it's going to help you more than just shooting a short film, which is incredibly hard to get anywhere with. Um, and then when you get out of school you can start working as a commercial director, hopefully, and actually make money being a director right away. Because if you want to be a movie director, it's going to take you a long time before you actually get to make that movie. Most of them, you know, never make it, to be, to be frank. But, uh, you know, everyone starts out as an editor or a DP or a lot of them obviously as writers and then eventually are allowed to direct something. But, you know, I got out of Art Center and I started directing you know, right off the bat. So that was great. So are you currently st pursuing other avenues of filmmaking? I noticed you had a pilot for a show called, called G block on your website. Um, are you still doing, uh, doing that kind of stuff, pursuing, um, other, other avenues? I am, uh, I've, I've, I've dabbled a lot in television recently. You mentioned that I also did a pilot called Iris, Iris expanding a couple of years ago. And I was out all year pitching a show, um, um, called the Hollywood Studio Club with, you know, very good support from sort of big players in the television business. It didn't get uh, bought anywhere because it's sort of a, you know, it's one of those long shot uh, things. It's period and uh, it's, it's, it's not the usual commercial fare, so it's harder to sell these things. Um, but it was, it was fun nonetheless. And I, I've got to tell you, it's extremely hard to get anything sold in television. Television is you know, again, entirely different. And, uh, you know, there are obviously lots of other books written about that. <laughs> it's, uh, but, but I have to say, I think it helped a lot coming from commercials, um, because of the aspect of having to sell something to someone, um, you know, in, in commercials, if every time you bid for a project, you, you, you make a treatment, you come up with this whole treatment and it's very visual and you talk about it and you present it and, and you, you sort of have to present your vision, which is exactly what you have to do in television. Uh, and in television, you know, the most powerful people are the writers. 
uh, obviously they're the studio executives, but the writers are the ones who really run the show. There's actually, you know, the, the job as a showrunner, that's actually the top guy on any show. It's called the showrunner and he's, you know, on the credits, he, he's called executive producer, but the, the inside the industry term is showrunner because he runs the show, he's responsible for everything. And usually that person is a writer. Um, because the writers are the ones who really have all the power and the directors in television aren't, uh, you know, at the same level as you are in a movie or in, in a commercial, um, because you just come in, you do one episode and then you're out and maybe you do another episode two, you know, two episodes further down, but the writers, they're there every week and they're the ones who really are the protectors of the integrity of the show and of the characters and of the story. They're really the ones who hold hold that in their hands not the director so uh, and I was obviously trying to you know create my own show it was my idea and I wanted to, to be the creator of the show and be you know uh, obviously a director on it but also uh, be a writer on it and an executive producer and eventually work my way up to becoming a showrunner yeah. but it's interesting though you don't you don't see that that much you don't see a lot of a lot of directors um, involved so heavily with the production of a show yeah, because it's just it's the logistics, you know. I mean, the shows they they shoot they shoot a, they shoot an episode a week, um, and if you're a director, you you can't do that because you prep you have to prep an episode which takes you you know three or four or five days, and then you shoot it, and then you do a little bit of editing on it, but most of the editing is actually done by the, the by the showrunner simultaneously. So as a director, you can't go back to back episodes usually. Um, unless you have a lot of lead time and you can prep several shows at once, but the, the usual logistical process, it's a machine and you just, you know, if you're lucky and you're a regular director on a TV show, you direct an episode every three weeks and that's it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a completely, completely different process. But the selling, as I said, the selling really helps the, 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 uh, going into a room with visual material and being able to talk about the vision and the story helped, you know, in, in this process of, of all of those projects that I did, uh, the, I was expanding the very first one to, you know, starting with that, the presentation for that was very colorful and, and rich and it was sort of a multimedia thing. And, you know, you go into these rooms uh, at TV networks and studios where usually they see a writer or two who you know, basically gives them a verbal pitch about something uh, and all of a sudden you come in and you have all this material and they have pictures to look at and, and so it's, you know, that certainly helped. And I also have to say, not the whole showrunner thing in TV, you know, people are like, oh, you have to be, you know, a showrunner and it's like the toughest job. But if you really look at it, I mean, in commercials, we do that on every commercial. You know, every each and every commercial, uh, as you know, is is a completely new project. It's a different location, different actors, different crew. You know, everything is different except the, you know, maybe the, you know, the, the production staff might be the same, but it's, it's a new animal every time. And in, in TV, at least, you know, you're on the same stage for three months and you have the same cast for three months and you just, you know, you kind of have to turn the pages around and you shoot a little bit more. But essentially what we're doing is show running in commercials as well. So... Yeah, and an argument can be made that it's even more difficult because you have to tell a story in, in a, such a condensed amount of time. And then you got that. It's a, it's a different medium. You know, it's a different, it's, it's a different format, and that's really uh, important. And, and I, I, I don't know if it 
which one is you know more difficult or easier intrinsically i think there are some people who like to you know make things shorter and tell it in a shorter time and then there are people who are much better at telling a story on a on a, on a broader canvas and um you know you just have more space for your brush strokes in, in, in a way so so what was it like for you when you uh, when you first graduated? What was um, getting that first uh, you know getting signed by I think um, what Boxer Films is is the company that you signed with initially? No, I didn't sign with Boxer initially. Uh, I I signed with a another boutique company. I think they were called Union Pacific Pictures, and uh, through actually through another student who had graduated a term ahead of me. Uh, he said, "Hey, you should check these guys out." So I sent my reel there, and I was I was still. I, I remember I got a call from them while I was at Art Center, like doing something at at school. I was still editing there or something, um, and I had a kids reel at the time. I was, you know, all the spots that I did at Art Center were were sort of had had kids in them. They weren't necessarily kid products, but they had uh, you know child actors in them, which was considered a sort of you know a very specific genre um because in commercials you know you get pigeonholed in a specific genre and that's what your reel has to be and that's how you get hired so they had they called me and said hey we really need a kid director um for this for the spot do you want to you know do you mind if we send your reel in are you you know represented anywhere and i'm like no please send my reel in right so um, they sent my reel in. And we we ended up not getting it, but um, that's how you know I got in touch with my first U.S. company, uh, and I was with them for I want to say like a year or so, and we did a few smaller projects. But they were they were sort of starting out as well, um, and uh, so that was difficult. But I my first real jobs, like solid jobs, I actually got out of Europe. Um, you know, I had, I had a lot of being German, I had a lot of connections over in, in Germany and, um, met a, you know, met some agency people who introduced me to a production company in Frankfurt. And then all of a sudden they were like, Oh great. Can we send your reel out? And then they sent my reel out and then we started booking jobs. So I, I basically started working in Europe and, um, again with kids stuff. And what happened is that I got this one job for Danon you know, the yogurt, like a kid yogurt product. And because this was through um, the, the agency, uh, was Young and Rubicam at the time. I don't know if they still have that account. But, you know, they're part of the whole Young and Rubicam network. And then when they work with you, the guys in Frankfurt are like, oh, this was really, you know, fun. Then they start sharing that commercial with all the other people in the network. So all of a sudden, I started getting calls from... Um, Young and Rubicam Zurich, Young and Rubicam Milano, and I was doing Dan and Nestle jobs, you know, in Spain and Italy and in Switzerland, and so that sort of just, you know, started happening. So you had representation in the uh, in the United States as well as internationally, which um, which is common. Can you speak to that a little bit? It's it's common. The way it works in the U.S. is um, usually you're exclusive with one company for the entire U.S. So they have, you know, you're on their roster and that's it. Uh, the idea being that the market is so big that uh, if they really invest the time and the effort and the money in you to, to send your reel all over the United States, 
that that will give you enough work to make a living off. Uh, in in Europe, it's a little bit different because the markets are more divided up and more you know they're a lot smaller. So in Germany, you don't have to be exclusive with one company. In France, in Spain, in Italy, you don't have to be exclusive with one company. You you can be represented by several companies. And actually, you know, since I've started all the way to now, things have changed quite a bit because now it's like uh, people are so interconnected that. You know, a company in Prague, uh, I'm actually bidding a job right now, um, that came through a company um, who's based in Milan, but their, but their producer in Prague um, found me somehow, but the job is in, a job out of India with an Indian agency to be produced by that company in India. So it's, you know, they find you. If they, your, your reel is good enough and people see it and... and uh, you know, and in essence, you're as a director, you're a product. You're the product that these companies sell to the to the agencies. That's why they get these jobs. They don't get the jobs because they can, you know, produce a spot. I mean, anyone can produce a spot. They get the job because they have the right director for the job. So they so there's a, a demand. They people will want to see what's out there. They will want to see stuff. Um, and reels, and they are open to it, and it's a lot easier in Europe. I'm not going to lie than it is in in the U.S. to get you know to the right people. Usually in the U.S., people will say, "Well, just send in your reel," and you never hear from them again. And in Europe, you can you know if you're in Berlin, you can call someone up, and and they'll be like, "Yeah, come on by for a coffee," and you can show them their reel. So it's a little different, but in essence, you know, you're the product. They will you know if your reel is out there. Uh, then you know it's that's what it takes. It's you have to get in front of as many people as you can, and then someone has a job and they think of your reel, and then they will ask you if you want to do it, and then if you're available, you say yes. In the U.S., there's this sense that you absolutely need to specialize in a genre, essentially to uh, to do the same spot over and over again, because agencies are are really concerned and want to feel uh, feel safety. In, in their investment in you. Basically they want to see the, the spot that you're, you're going to be doing already on your reel. I've heard that, um, that outside the US the, the guidelines are, are not quite as stringent. In your experience, have you found that to be accurate? I, w- I would say that's, that's roughly correct. It's, it's certainly unfortunately changing a little bit more to the US model everywhere. Um, and, and part of the reason is, as you said, it's because people want to see their spot on your reel and it's a safety thing. Um, another reason is that after, you know, the sort of the triple recession that the advertising industry went through and with a, you know, commercial production, it has become a, a real race just to be in someone's hand and on a, in a, you know, agency producer's hand and, and to actually get on their desk and be, be seen as a, as a reel. And so the, the genre classification, um, does, I guess, help the agencies to, you know, cut down the amount of reels that they get for something because right now and over the last, you know, two or three years, if, if you're, um, an agency producer and you put out a call for a job, you will get 200 reels the next day. 
And obviously no one can watch 200 reels. Um, you know, no one has the time to do that. So there, there has to be some sort of way, I guess, for them to, to say, okay, you know, instant, like instant recognition. Okay. This guy's a fit. This guy's not a fit. This is a fit just to cut down the pile. Um, and, and, uh, I guess that's what it's good for, you know, for better or for worse. So I, that's why I think I say that in the book, you might as well use that to your advantage. Um, because you have to cut through the clutter, you know, it's, it's all about the access. If you don't have the access, then you can be as talented and as great, um, as, as, you know, as anyone, but if you, if you, if you can't get in, you know, in front of the creatives, then it's not going to help you, you know? So you mentioned, uh, this kind of triple recession. Um, there's, there's also been a lot of big, uh, big shifts in media and the way it's consumed over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does that affect commercial production in terms of um, just create like creatively and and production budgets? Well, it was a, it's been huge. I mean, the industry has completely changed from let's say the mid '90s. Um, you know, it used to be it used to be just you know the biggest boondoggle in the world in many ways, um, and now it's gotten a lot more competitive and a, a lot more. Um, sort of thin line between making money and losing money on a job. So the the three obviously the three big recessions were first there was the you know the the internet bubble sort of the e-commerce bubble um, like late '90s there was this huge this enormous surge of commercials for e-commerce companies who had all this money investment startup money that they got and did all these commercials and there was a um, a ballooning of the commercial industry, and and then when the bubble burst, all these people stayed in the in the industry, and then obviously we had these sort of uh, you know the the two the two recessions first the sort of the nine you know the nine eleven recession which basically you know took down advertising quite badly, and then the actual economic recession that we're going through right now is the, is the third one, and through all this time more people came into the industry and then something exploded, but these people stayed in. Simultaneously, as you said, media is changing dramatically. I mean, in the 90s, you couldn't shoot, you know, on video or digitally. It w- was not acceptable. Although, you know, all the way until probably 2000, I would say, five or something, you, 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 just, you just wouldn't. And now it's like, you know, people, if you say you want to shoot on film, people look at you like, what, you know, what an anachronistic thought, you know, um, how, how dare you? Uh-huh. So, uh, so obviously that's on, on one hand, that's good because production budgets, you know, you can, you can produce cheaper and it's, you can shoot more footage on the other hand, you know, there, there is, it, it is a different approach. Like you, 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 you might, some people say you take more care when you're rolling film than when you're rolling, you know, when you're rolling bits. Um, so, so that is one thing, but obviously for, for people who are starting out, the huge advantage is that you have access to technology nowadays that is basically, you know, on par with professional technology. Do you think that it is kind of adding to the noise of what's out there or does that sort of help weed out the people who are, uh, who are really good? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a democratization, um, a leveling of the playing field. Yes. 
you know, it will, there will be more stuff out there, but people who didn't have the chance to show what they can do now actually can show what they can do on the same level. You know, in the 90s, if you wanted to have, and, I, and I've been told this, by the way, by producers when I, when I first went out from Art Center and I showed them my commercials, you know, and the budgets were like three, four, five thousand dollars we had spent on these commercials. And they were producers who told us, look, you know, you, your art direction isn't good enough. I mean, you got to spend like fifty thousand dollars just on art direction to, to, you know, make these commercials look better. And, and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I can't afford that, obviously. So, so now, um, you know, it, it's not that there's someone who has access to all this, all these resources who gets to do a good commercial. Now you can do that, you know, on a very minimal budget. Um, and, and that's great because now, you know, there's a chance for talented people to come up with great ideas. It's more freedom and, you know, and actually make it and, and, and go somewhere with it. So I think, I think that's great. Um, the negative side effect is that obviously clients and to some degree agencies have, uh, you know, smelled the rat and now understand that things don't have to cost as much as they used to cost. And so the budgets, you know, have dropped dramatically. I think the average budget in like 2001 or 2002, the average commercial budget was 300 grand or something. And now it's like 120. So, that is huge. And then the volume has uh, dropped. The volume of commercials has dropped. And probably the biggest effect is that the sort of midfield of commercials has, has sort of has, has disappeared. There used to be, you know, you always had commercials at around like 100 to 150 grand and then up to like 300, 400,000. And then there was that area between like 450 to 800,000 and then you have sort of the top end from like 800 million 2 million up and that whole field between like 400 to 800 it seems has kind of disappeared it's just gone and the people who were doing those jobs are now doing the jobs you know further down and that obviously has a trickle down effect on everyone else so there're just more people vying for fewer jobs that don't pay as much as they used to and that don't have the big budgets as they used to. So that's obviously a recipe for, you know, for trouble. Uh, so so you've also, you've done a lot of broadcast uh, spots as well as uh, stuff that's made for the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Production-wise, what are the difference between the two? Is it is it just budgetary? Or- uh, well, production-wise, production it's actually probably the same. I mean, obviously you have, you have budget, you know, differences. Usually clients don't want to spend as much money on a, on a web spot because they think it's got to be free because everything on YouTube is free. So why can't we just, you know, have people do commercials for us for free? (laughs) Um, so that is, you know, certainly a, a difference. The, um, but but in terms of the actual nuts and bolts production, there's there's not much of a difference. The, the bigger difference is actually in in creative. If you do, I mean, yes, you can just shoot a commercial and have it run both on TV and on the internet. But really, you know, if you're talking about new media, it's really more interesting to do something that actually utilizes the new media and the interactivity to some degree, or at least you know do something that's somehow interesting and that is not just a commercial transferred to the internet. 
So that's creatively, that's more interesting. Um, or, or it's a different approach. And also when you're shooting it, you have to make some creative decisions based on what the final platform is. You know, uh, if, if people are watching something on a, you know, 400 by 600 window on their computer, as opposed to their TV screen, that's a difference. You can't, you know, you can't have like this giant wide shot that is then shown on a tiny little screen. And then when you watch it, you can't really see anything because everything's too small. So you have to keep those things in mind, how, you know, shot sizes and, and motion is affected. And, uh, so there's, there's some creative differences that you sort of have to account for, you know, sound is usually not as present, uh, when you watch something online as it is on, on a television. So that's a big different type, you know, type might look different and animations might look differently depending on the pixelation and the compression and, and all those things. So, and also is there uh, I mean, typically when you're doing a broadcast uh, thing, you, you have, um, exactly 30 seconds or exactly a minute or whatever, uh, with the internet, uh, spot, uh, you have some more freedom with that. You, you do, although it depends on, you know, where, uh, the, the project is ultimately going to run on the internet because if you, you know, if you have, uh, if they actually want to buy time, let's say on like YouTube as a pre-roll or on any, like on ESPN.com as a pre-roll, then they actually have time constraints. They can, you know, it's a 10 second pre-roll or it's a 30 second pre-roll. Whereas if it's a video that goes on someone's website or it's a, you know, quote unquote viral video that they're producing and they just want to put it on YouTube in the hopes that people somehow, you know, share it then you obviously are free in terms of the time that you spend on it. You know, it could be, you know, 47 seconds long or something. Uh, but, but that's a, yeah, it depends on where it, what ends up playing. In the introduction to your book, um, you asked the reader to, uh, to imagine a job where you need to work only 10 days a year to make $100,000. Mm -hmm. And then further down, you mentioned it's one of the, uh, the coolest jobs out there, but also one of the, the toughest to get. So tell me uh, about the process of what somebody who wants to do this should do. Uh, you know, they're coming out of school. What what should they do to try to get work as a commercial director, starting with um, putting together a spec reel? Well, that's that's it. I mean, you got to put together, you know, a reel, a spec reel, um, and what you, what what you have to do is you have to play the game by you know the rules that are set up. Unfortunately. But there are genres, so you have to decide what genre you want to be in. You know what what hole you want to be pigeoned in. Are you going to be a car director, or a comedy director, or a visual storytelling, or a food director, or a tabletop, or a fashion guy, or whatever it is? Essentially, what you're doing is you're you're building your brand. And to be successful, really successful, you have to think of yourself as a brand. Uh, you see a lot of directors, and this this wasn't the case when I started out, but now it's you know everywhere. They they now have you know single names. I mean, Tarsem was one of the first ones to do that, but he did it because his last name is Singh, which is just you know the most ordinary common Indian name you can have. Right. It's like Smith. Yeah. Uh, and so he didn't want to use that, so he just said, "I'm just Tarsem," um, and. 
it's sort of, I don't know how conscious it was, but it definitely, you know, created some sort of a brand coupled with his visual style. And he built, you know, if people would say, oh, that's, that looks like a Tarsem spot, which means, you know, it's like, oh, his name is now being referred to as a, as a style. And all of a sudden he's a brand. And now you have all these, like, you know, all these people, all, all these people who have these funky names and you have like directing teams that call like, the magni- magnificent Zonzos and Mr. X and, you know, like all, all these like funky names that are, that are an attempt to, to brand, you know, themselves somehow to make it more mysterious or interesting. And, and you have to do the same with your reel, you know, you have to create a look, you have to create a feel. So then people, um, watch your reel, they're left with an impression of you that is, um, memorable because otherwise you know once they have watched reel number 57 they won't remember your reel that's why i tell people you essentially want to do the same spot three or four times um as your spec spot if don't go and shoot a car spot and a fashion spot and a comedy spot and expect to get work because people will look at the reel and they will be like Okay, but so, but who is this guy? Right. What does he do? But what if what if all those uh, spots, all those different genre spots, what if they're all well done? Does that not does that matter? Or, or doesn't matter. That, yeah. No, there's 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 so many well done things out there. Um, if if you have a spot and you have if let's just say they're looking for a car guy, right? And you and you have four spots in your reel. They're all great spots, but only one is a car spot. And then they have thirty other guys who have reels with six car spots that are all well done. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just it. They're like, okay, well, yeah, he's got good spots, but he only has one car spot. And literally, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but literally it's things like, okay, you know, I know this guy has like seven spots on the reel and they're all funny and great, but does he, there's no snow. Our, our spot has snow in it. Like, can he do snow? And and you just want to rip out rip out your hair, right? And it's like, yeah, I mean it's it's outrageous. Sometimes it's it's like, well, all all the cars in this spot are sort of like, you know, they're sort of like silver and black, but our car's really colorful. So we really need to know if he can shoot like a colorful car. And uh it's you know, I mean, what what can you say to that? You can't, you know. And the, and the problem is that there will be more than a dozen reels that fulfill what it is that they're looking for. Thankfully, there are still people who like to take chances, but there, you know, one way of looking at it, and I, and I say this to someone who's who's married to an advertising creative, um, but people in the advertising world are, you know, just as much concerned about their careers as we are concerned about our careers. So if they have the chance to work with some big name director because he wants to do their project, then there's a lot of enticement to do that. Why would they, why would they give someone a chance, some unknown person a chance risking that they screw up their spot, which the agency is liable for to their client. If they have the chance to say, Oh, I can hire you know, Brian Buckley, or I can hire, you know, uh, Ridley Scott, or I can, I, well, Ridley Scott is too big, but, you know, like a, like a solid name commercial director, like I can, I can hire Jim Jenkins, or I can hire any of those guys. 
Yeah, and if it doesn't work out, you can go, well, I, I hired the best exactly. guy. Exactly. And yeah. look, I mean, we hired this guy. He's like one of the best. I don't know what happened. And also, once, see, they're thinking about their own reel. So when they go and look for a new job, they can sit down and say, well, I worked with uh, Zack Snyder and I shot with uh, you know, Joe Pitka and I, and I shot with this guy and this guy and this guy. And if they're like five big names, people will be impressed. And so there is a sort of, you know, reputational thing going on there as well for them that's important to their careers. And, you know, you have to, you have to understand that. So that's just the way it is. So you, uh, you started off specializing in, in spots that, uh, that starred children. Uh, mm -hmm. it, but I, you know, I look at your work now, and and none of them have <laughs> have kids in them. Right. So how did you make that transition to, uh, you know, it, it, you, there's a lot of different styles going on in your spots too. I mean, you, it seems like you've kind of um, you've transitioned a couple times. Yes, I never. Um, I, I think I started up doing children because you know at art center uh, that was um, I, I thought that hey, this might be. In, in niche to get into because I, I always enjoyed working with, with children, you know, and I never thought it was anything specific or anything like special, like, you know, a child is a, a person like anyone else and, uh, you know, they can, they can act. They've, as long as you're having fun, they will have a good time acting. And then people were like, yeah, you know, kids directors are really uh, thought after. So I'm like, okay, great. Well, I'll do kid spots then. And so I did. And it got me work and it got me started. And then at some point I was like, okay, so I'm stuck with all this, with all these kids' products and I really want to keep growing. And so I started um, doing some spec stuff uh, in commercials. I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in comedy. So um, I began to slowly build a comedy reel and then I started, you know, doing, getting comedy spots. I basically told uh, my, my agents and, and reps, look, don't send me out for kid stuff anymore. I want to do comedy. And then, uh, you know, we did like one or two spots that were really successful. Um, and you win some awards and all of a sudden you're a comedy guy. And right now, as a matter of fact, I'm going through an, another change because I'm sick of comedy. Um, I'm, I want to get out of it. I want to go back to sort of visual storytelling, which originally before I did kids, that's what I wanted to do. Right. It's like, pretty pictures see what I, I've been I've been sort of lamenting the fact that a lot of the comedy that's out there now is just point and shoot because it's so influenced by television and it's um, you know a lot of the comedy is it's a funny scene people are doing something funny so all you do is you, you, you shoot it and there's no thought wasted on you know making it visually interesting and I don't I don't like that I, I, you know, what am I doing there? I mean, yes, I'm directing the actors, but it's, I'm sort of like using only half my brain to do these spots in a way. So I really want to do something more interesting. And, um, but, and, and another good reason is that, you know, everyone and their brother is doing comedy uh, because it is so visually, uh, you know, I'm going to say low standard, you know, a, like a lot of um, people from the advertising industry when they become directors, they become comedy directors because they're, they write a funny spot and then they're like, oh, I want to direct it. And all they have to do is point the camera and they don't have to know anything about filmmaking. And I've always been, you know, very proud of the fact that I could, that I know how to, you know, change the film in a 60 millimeter magazine. And I, and I know how to put up a light. And I know how to light it. And, I, and, and like, I know the craft of filmmaking and there are just, you know, so many directors who 
don't and have no clue. And usually they're comedy directors. And so I'm just, I'm trying to get out of that, in other words. So there are spots on your reel, though, that kind of seem to bridge the gap between the two. Like there's the um, the Ikea spot, which is right. a really great commercial uh, with the, um, the the guy. It's kind of a montage with the uh, this guy taking his lamp to all these romantic locations. Uh, right. And I always try to, you know, not be one dimensional and, and try to do that. I mean, I, I did this whole series of spots in Jamaica with the, the West Indies cricket team that were, you know, these funny stories, but I tried to be visually really, you know, kind of quirky with it as well. And, you know, just try to always put some visual interesting stuff in it, get some, some, you know, some, some cool shots or whatever it is. But the problem is that, that, it doesn't get valued enough because people look at it as a comedy spot, and and so really, so they don't see the um, the kind of artistry behind it because a, a lot a lot you know you said a lot of comedy spots are are very bland visually, yeah. And I think when when one isn't like the uh, you know the IKEA spot, it to me it sort of stands out, and and that's great that that you know you see that, but unfortunately I think. Um, in 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 the uh, context of booking jobs, people when they look for a comedy director, they're not going to look at how visually interesting it is, if that makes sense. They're looking at how funny it is, and just because they don't have the the background to really understand that, and you know, I'm not saying they're all idiots, but it's just it's just like you go in, into something with a certain mindset, so you're you're perception is sort of limited to look at a specific thing that you're judging something by and i think that is the effect that it's that it's having whereas when you say oh you know if they have a spot that is they see it in their head they see it very visual because it's some let's just say it's you know a car spot that is very you know gritty or has a lot of texture to it then they look for that and then they see it you know and then if there's a spot that is like that and it's also funny then they won't even notice the comedy they're just they're just looking at what they're looking at, you know, what they're looking for. So I think that's that effect. Tell me a little bit about the IKEA spot and, and what went into the production of that. The IKEA spot uh, was shot in Hamburg, um, and it was a very fairly, fairly small project uh, that was. It was actually for for the IKEA originally for the IKEA website, because the film is actually supposed to entice. Um, pupils when, when they come out of school, you know, in Germany, you, you you can choose to go to university, but you can also get take an apprenticeship and basically get an education while working for a company, and you're actually earning a degree. Um, and and so this was a, a spot that was supposed to get people to do their apprenticeship at IKEA. About you know, do you love furniture? Come you know, work for IKEA and 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 get your get your education there. And so um, the agency, you know, had that little idea. They didn't have very a lot of money. Uh, this was with a, a production company in Hamburg that is, you know, a, a very uh, good, very sort of old-time, long-standing production company. Was at the time they've changed now, but they're still the same people pretty much. And they were like, "Hey, you know, we've got this really funny idea here, but they don't have much money." And I was—I think I was in town for another job. And they were like, "Do you want to do this?" And I'm like, I looked at them like, "Yeah, totally. You know, it's so much fun. Let's do it." Um, and and so you know, we shot that all in one day, uh, 16 millimeter. And the like, the roar in the background was a complete you know 
lucky shot. Like, I mean, we saw him coming, but he, he wasn't on the payroll, you know, it was like, uh-huh. you know, the camera was set up and then I saw him coming and I was, I was just like, roll the camera. And the DP was like, I haven't metered it yet. And I was like, I don't care. Just roll it. And he rolled it. And I was just, just screaming to the guy, just sit down, don't move, don't move. Right. And yeah. none of that you see, but, and then the, the guy rolls by and it's just this amazing moment, you know? Yeah. And the same with the fireworks, the fireworks were complete, you know, it was a, some sort of fair and we went there and I was thinking like maybe we we'll shoot him on the, on the Ferris wheel or something with his lamp. And then these fireworks start and we just start filming them. And we had no idea if we actually got anything on film, you know, the 16 millimeter and fireworks. It's always one of those, you don't know, but it ended up, you know, looking, looking just fine. So, yeah. When you're planning out the shoot, how much, um, how much leeway are you able to, to give yourself for those kind of, of magical little detail moments that, that really add so much color to a spot? You should give yourself every leeway possible. And the best way to do that is to plan everything down to the smallest detail. Um, that might sound, sound like a contradiction, but um, I'm, I'm actually, I consider myself extremely organized and prepped. Um, you know, I have, my shot lists are very detailed uh, to the degree that you know, my, my uh, ADs are like, what do you need me for? Um, because I, I know like who has to be in what shot and I know sort of I, very often I'll, you know, I'll, I'll dictate the schedule to the AD. Um, you know, it's like because I had, sometimes there's, you know, some reason behind shooting in a certain progression that the, the AD doesn't just know about. And they look at it from a logistical standpoint, but I will be, you know, I'm, I'm very involved in those things. And so I prep everything uh, to, to great detail, you know, shooting boards and, and shot lists and some overhead plans and uh, all those things. Because then I know what I need to have a spot at the end. Okay. And once I know that, then I can go in and I know what, what I need to get. And then if there's an opportunity to grab something that develops or to, you know, find a moment or to improvise, then I'm completely in a, in a completely secure, you know, position because I can let that happen because I know what I need and I know when I have it. So I have a spot at the end. So that's the position that I like to be in. You know, if, if, if you think you're going to go, you know, you're not going to prep and you're just going to like hope for things to magically happen, then you go in you're going to be stressed out in no time trying to figure out on the set, in the moment, how, how you know, this whole commercial is going to work and how it's going to be put together. I have the commercial edited before I go out and shoot it in my head. And then it's, you know, never, it, it ends up never being quite the way that I imagined it, obviously. But it, it ends up being a little bit better because, you know, we, there was that space to let stuff happen. And I think you only have that if, if you come in completely prepped and you, you, you don't have to figure out, you know, stuff while you're on the set, it's the worst. And when you sit down with the agency and then they start rewriting stuff and you're trying to figure out, you know, and they're trying to sec- second guess their decisions. And I'm like, no, this is, you know, you, you thought about this, this is the way we got to shoot it and let's get that. And then once we have it, you want to try something else, you know, go for it. Um, and, and sometimes I, you know, it, it is the, the, the shots that, um, that happen, 
you know, some, very often I will, I will just roll the camera during, you know, prep or rehearsal or lighting when the talent doesn't know about it. When you want to, when you want to get those special moments where they just seem very authentic and real. I actually have a, I have a code word with my DP. Um, so, so you don't have to say, okay, you know, can, can you roll the, can you can whisper, you know, roll the camera that the, the, the talent will know that. So I have a, I have a code word that I use with my DP and then, um, he knows to just, he has prepped his, his camera crew for that. So they know, and then he just goes up to the camera and flicks it on and talent doesn't know we're running, we're rolling and you know, it's the, and then when you see that you have it, even though it was not exactly what you wanted, but it's, it's better, it's great, then you can always discard what you wanted to do in the first place. And you can always be like, hey, this is so awesome, fine. You know? And then you say, okay, great, we're moving on. And the talent is like, oh, I didn't know we were shooting. Yeah, no, I know you didn't know. <laughs> that's, why we're, that's why it's good. <laughs> you know? right. So um, I, I remember there was one, one, sh- one shoot where this one guy was a new father and he, so he didn't get enough sleep. So he was really tired and, but he was a very high energy actor. So every time he rolled the camera, he was like, you know, going at 180. and I'm like, dude, you're supposed to be tired. And so, but it was a night shoot. So, so I just said, you know what, let's, let's shoot something else. And then we kept shooting other stuff. And then we came back to him like at four in the morning and he was still like high energy as soon as the camera rolled. But when he was, when he was just standing there, uh, in the light, but we weren't rolling. He was, you know, you could see he was tired. He was yawning and his eyes were like half shot. So that's when we did that. We just said, let's just roll him right there. And he, you know, not tell him. And it was completely real and authentic because he was tired. He was completely tired. And so, we, you know, we got what we needed by essentially tricking him in a, little, in, in, in a, in a way, you know. But you do what you got to do. So when you're working on set, how typically um, involved are the uh, is the the client and the agency in, in what's going on? Are are you getting a lot of notes? Uh, what what's the relationship like usually? It's uh, it's well, if you're not getting any notes, then you're either doing something very right or you're doing something very wrong. Uh, usually, usually though, it's you know you're doing something well and right, so that's good. They hired you, so. At the end of the day, the client pays for the film. It's their film. And you're there to deliver a product for them. You know, you're a hired gun. You take the beach. You're the guy who's, you know, who's expendable in, in a way. So, you, so there's, a, there's a, an element of you know, you're working for them. On the other hand, you're, you're the artist. They are, you know, they're not. They hired you because you are the artist. And if they didn't want to hire you, you know, you the artist, and they should have hired someone else. So they, I see that as um, it is my job to deliver the product to them, but also to give them my opinion and, and to, you know, give them my best expertise. And this is what I'm good at. So this is what I do. So this is this is my opinion. And you know, if, if they end up, if they decide they don't want to do it that way or this way, then fine. But you know, I will fight for it to a certain. Uh, to a certain point. Now there are agencies who will be saying, "Look, uh, here's here's the here's the script. It's your film now," and they will sit back and they will watch you and they will trust you. And then you know, every once in a while, uh, and this is usually you know, if it's a really strong creative, and then they will you know come up to you and be like, "Hey, you know, I have an idea. How how do you like this?" But only if you really you know if you really think it will work. 
and so there's a good relationship. And then you have then you have some agencies who are completely insecure, and they want to you know micromanage and control everything, and they have they, you know they want to give actors line readings. They, they'll be like, oh no 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 no, he has to say it this way, you know, and and then they say the line, which is obviously the worst thing you can do to an actor, um, because they're not you know a puppet, they're not a machine with a button, so. Uh, and, and then they start talking to the actor, which is the worst thing. So when that happens, you're in, you're in deep, deep trouble. You have people that are supposed to control that. And it also, you know, there's an agency producer and there's, there's your producer. And if you are in a situation where there's a lot of client and agency stuff, uh, people around, and, and they have a lot of stuff to say, the way it's supposed to work is that there's the, you know, the video village, the agency tent, where the client and the agency sit and they watch what you're doing. And then if they have a note... They tell the agency producer who's, who's on their side. And the agency producer comes and goes to the, the producer, the executive producer, um, or sometimes directly to the director and says, so this is what they, you know, this is their note. And then you take their note and then you try to make it work. Um, but they're, they're, obviously that's not the ideal situation. Uh, but it is, it is a diplomatic issue and it's difficult because let's say you have eight clients and six agencies sitting around. So you have 14 people that are, you know, sitting around and all of them have to sort of justify their salary and have to have an opinion about something. So you don't want to get into a situation where you go up to their tent and say, so did everyone like how the guy smiled? And then you get 14 different opinions, right? So you, you need to also think about who the person is that holds the power in that agency creative group that really makes that decision, and you want to kind of play to them. So what I do is, um, you know, I, before I shoot a shot, I obviously go and talk to the agency. So I, it's, we, we, everyone knows the shots. We have, a, we have a shooting board, so they know I'm now shooting the guy walking out of the house. So I set up the shot. Um, Maybe we do one um, rehearsal and shoot that. And then I go to the agency tent and we watch it together. And I'm like, what does everyone think? You know, always, always knowing that there's one person who, end, who ends up making the final decision if they like it or not. Um, and so once you, once you include them, you know, especially on shots that aren't that you know, important – then it becomes just an easier situation because they feel included. They feel like, you know, you value their opinion. It's a cooperation. All of that is good. Okay. Um, so, so, and then you, sh then I go and I shoot it, you know, three, four times. And then I go back to the tent and say, look, I think the third take was great. What do you guys think? You're happy. Great. Let's move on. And if they have something they want to do, then, you know, if they, if, they, if they say, look, we really want him to raise his left hand when he walks out of the house, I'm like, great, let's shoot that. You know, and then that's done. Now, one important trick that I, that I use a lot, uh, that I use all the time, actually, on every set. Um, so, you know, now with the, a lot of the digital and, and the, the video tabs on the, on the expensive cameras as well, they basically, the agency basically sees a live image of what's going on in front of the camera at all times. So very often what happens is that they see they, – they, they sit there and you're setting up a shot and it takes you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes to light the shot and to set up the dolly or whatever. So they stare at this image 
and they have 25 minutes to think about what's wrong with this image, and they're not even looking at the final image. Okay, so I had, I had it before on commercials where I had a dolly shot set up, and the, the, you know, it was a rolling dolly. So in other words, like you start moving the dolly, and then while it's moving, it comes to point A. You know? So, so the, it's basically a, 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 the dolly is you know, all the way at the very beginning of the track, which is what you see is not really part of the shot. Right, so but the agency was looking at that, and so they you know, they got really concerns. Like, you know, can you explain to us what's going on here? We don't really understand. Why are we showing this stuff? And there's like, and I looked at the monitor, and I was like, guys, this is um, you're looking at a non-image. Like, this is you know obviously not what we're shooting. Mm-hmm. So long story short, what I do now is I go to the uh, the video guy, and I basically tell them, look, I need you to switch off the video feed to the client monitor at all times and except when I tell you to switch it on, then you can switch it on. And if the agency producer comes to you and demands and asks, you know, says, oh, we don't have a video feed, tell them that you don't have a feed from the camera yet or something. I don't want them to see an image that isn't ready for them to be seen. And it avoids, you know, that, that avoids me having to deal with a lot of questions that are just completely unnecessary and that just drag everything down. I'd rather have, show them something that is, you know, close to what it's actually going to look like. And then we can talk about that. Because otherwise, they're, they're just going to, you know, the imagination is going to run wild and they have come up with questions that you, you don't want to have to answer because it's just wasting waste of time. They're unnecessary. Unfortunately, sometimes when you shoot with a smaller agency and they don't have an agency producer, that's when you get into serious conflicts because then, you know, the, the, my producer has to tell the agency that, you know, creative that there's no money to do this or that shot or to go overtime. And the creative who has nothing to do with money just gets upset. And really what should happen is my producer should tell the agency producer and then the agency producer has to tell the creative and... Because the agency producer understands, and then they have to tell the, the agency that's their job. So sometimes, you know, uh, we 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 curse the fact that there are so many people on a set, but a lot of them serve a purpose in this very intricate hierarchy that's going on there, and you just got to be able to manage it, um, and you know, play it to your advantage as much as you can. What camera do you typically shoot on these days? Uh, I'm assuming it, it varies uh, production to production, but what's uh, what are the uh, the typical cameras you're shooting on? It, you know, it depends on, let's say, the motif, but it also depends on where we're shooting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm bidding jobs overseas, uh, well, if I'm bidding jobs in, like, you know, Russia or India, that's all digital now. Um, in Europe, there's still a bunch of film... But in general, let's say here, everything I bid now is probably on the Alexa type, you know, cameras. Um, smaller things might be on a on a 5D or something, but you know, on a red occasionally. So it's really, you know, it's really all over. Do you typically work with the the same DP? Yeah, I have a my my DP is you know Aaron Barnes, who I actually went to Art Center with, and we've been working. To get together ever since, so I try to do that. It doesn't always work out, but it's just good to have a certain, um, 
you know, rhythm when you work. Now, sometimes it's nice to have, you know, some other ideas and, you know, another person will just come up with different ideas and that's just the name of the game. But, um, you know, if you, if you're not dealing with a commercial that is like super creative, if it's just sort of like, Hey, you know, it's a solid commercial, but it's not like challenging creatively. Um, then, you know, you use the same guy and then you have a, your team and, you know, things move faster and smoother. And, you know, he, he, he knows I love to operate a lot. So, you know, I don't have to explain to him that I want to operate, you know, this or that shot with, with other DPs. They'll be like, Oh, what do you mean? You know, they feel step on their toes or something. And, and, uh, then again, you have some DPs and this has happened to me when I was, you know, younger, where they hire some older DP who thinks, you know, he's really the director and he like just moves the camera around, you know, and then you have to fight your DP and I'm like, look, what are you doing? I want the camera here, not there. And then, you know, you, you're dealing with that stuff, which you obviously don't want to have to deal with. So it's, you know, it's nice to have a team that you, that you work with and where things run smoothly and you know how stuff goes down. So when you were putting together your spec reel, did you write your own spots uh, for that? Yes. Uh, the, my original spec reel, I wrote all the, my own spots. Um, now, when I do spec stuff, and actually, I actually just um, did a really cool one. Um, but now, you know, I try to, sometimes I still write stuff, but, you know, my wife being an ad creative, she has fantastic ideas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. So that really helps. And then, um, you know, there are also, there are places like specbank.com. I don't know if they still exist, but I, I hope they do. Where, you know, ad creatives deposit spots that were turned down for people to look at and download and possibly shoot. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, ad creatives, they, you know, f for one spot that gets produced, they write 100. Yeah. Some of them are really good. And actually the spot that I just shot was a, a spot that my wife and her writing partner wrote um, that the client turned down, you know, but it's a great spot. So, you know, that's, I don't care that they didn't like it. So what's the, um, what's the impetus behind you doing a, a spec spot now? Are you, is it, is it you trying to get more into, uh, to that other genre you mentioned, like uh, more visual storytelling or, or you just, you're, you're just interested in, in kind of beefing up your current reel? Yeah, it's both of that. It's like changing the genre. Um, I, I have, you know, visual storytelling. I have some spots that fit that, like the IKEA spot kind of fits that. Yeah. Cause it's not a haha funny spot. It's, you know, visual storytelling as you, as you said. And I have a few of those, but you also want to just have fresh stuff on your reel and do new stuff. So, and in, in this specific one, actually, that we just shot, there was a, um, uh, I, I taught a class at the New York Film Academy. Um, they have a, you know, they have sort of, they, they bring in guest directors basically to shoot spec spots. So I was like, Hey, you know, let's shoot this one. And, um, so that's what we did. So that's how that came about. You know, it was sort of a win-win for everyone. And, um, we ended up shooting it and I got my production company boxer films involved and, and they helped out. So, you know, it's, it's, it was just one of those situations where it all fell into place. And I, I just tell people to keep shooting, you know, just keep shooting whether you, you know, get paid for it or not. I mean, that's your, that's your art. So you want to, you want to always try to do stuff and experiment around. And, you know, we always, we're always trying to, uh, you know, play around with new technologies. We did some 3D stuff and, you know, 
we, we mounted some like like I think six cameras on a on a car, um, and and drove through downtown Los Angeles, and you know then sort of um, assembled, stitched the pieces together to make sort of a cubist, you know, film that it was like very funky looking. So you know just like doing stuff is really important because that's your craft, it's your art. Is that online that that video? Uh, that one is not online no, because it nev- we we never really finished anything on it. Um, we're still just experimenting around with it. The um, the one the, the specs what we shot for the New York Film Academy that will be actually going on my website pretty soon. I think yeah. That that'll, that'll make it in the real actually. When you're doing a spec spot, or who's typically paying for it? Do you do you have your uh, production company pay for it? E- e- in my case, uh, I've been lucky, yes, that uh, Boxer Films has been very supportive in spending money on spec spots, so that's great. Um, but otherwise, yeah, you'd have to pay for it yourself. But again, you know, thanks to the technology nowadays, um, it's gotten so much easier to do these things. And if you, if you, you know, write the concept in a smart way, that's where you start saving money. You right. know? Well, when you're starting out and you don't have a production company, you obviously have to pay for everything yourself. But once, yeah. you, um, once you get signed with a production company, is, is that typical for them to uh, commission a, a spec spot for you? Uh, you know, I don't know how typical it is. Um, I think I've been a little spoiled by Boxer Films because they're, they're so supportive uh, in, in that way. But, and, they, and they also, by the way, will do jobs where they don't make any money just so you know, to get a new job on a reel. Like, even if, if it's like a $150,000 budget and I want to do something that, you know, ends up costing more and they end up not making, you know, a ton of money, they'll, they'll if they like the idea, they'll be like, sure, let's do that. You know, if it's good enough to go on the reel, then that's worth more than, you know, making an extra $5,000 on the markup or something or $10,000. But... I don't know if all production companies are that smart. Um, however, it is something that you should talk about when you get signed, or when you when you're talking about signing with someone. We're like, so what's the deal? Are you you know are you open to financing some spec spots, or will you do you know will you do jobs? Um, we don't make money, um, especially for young directors. That's really important because sometimes you know you, you, there's a project and it's like they have fifty grand to do it and you know. The production company is not going to make any money. So essentially, you know, if you take in account the, the overhead, they're going to lose money on it because just of office costs and stuff. But are they willing to do that for you because that job might go on your reel or it might go on television and it's always good to have stuff on television, um, you know, or, or, or you gain experience or you work, you do a favor for the agency and all those things. So that's something to talk about. Now, I'm not a big friend of doing favors for agencies, I have to say. Um, I thought I, I, I was, and I thought it would work out, but it, it really hasn't paid off that much. And we've done lots of favors for agencies, you know. But um, how so? You mean you haven't gotten anything in return out of it? Not really. I mean, there are a few people who've been who've been loyal and sort of have have you know paid back um, the favors, but. There are, you know, I, I would say the majority is you do a favor and, uh, you know, you produce something cheaply for them and then, you know, they get a, 
they get like a half a million dollar job and then they still go to some big director. Right. And, and so that's, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I've, I haven't been a friend lately of, of doing favors anymore, especially, you know, for certain agencies, I should say. I mean, um, there are, you know, there are obviously old standing sort of relationships and contacts you will always do favors for. But um, they don't, you know, you, you can't expect them to pay off, in other words. That's probably the best way to put it. So what's it like when you first get signed with a production company? Are, are you waiting for them to get you work? Or are you being uh, proactive about, um, you know, talking to the sales reps about what, you know, how they should be positioning you? And is it a kind of constant struggle? Or is there ever kind of this um, sort of waiting around for a phone call kind of thing? Well, if you're a new director, then it's it's a constant struggle, and it should be. Um, n- no one will ever care for your career as much as you do, and I, you know, I, I keep saying that. So, I've I've known too many people who you know came out of film school, got signed, and started looking for houses, and now and now they you know and now they you know are in a different industry. They're just something completely different. Uh, it's nothing's going to happen by itself. You need to be incredibly lucky. There are tons of talented people out there. Um, this is the hardest industry to get into. There is no, there's no other industry, you know, barring becoming an astronaut or the Pope or something. Um, there's nothing else where you have that many people vying for so few jobs with such a undescribed path because, you know, it's not like you go to, you go to med school and you know, the next eight years of your career and what they're going to be, what what they're going to look like. You know, you you do steps from A to Z and then you're, you're a doctor. It's not like that. You know, there's no prescribed path. There's no, um, you know, trajectory. It's just complete free form. And you, you are in charge of your career and you have to stay on it. And, you know, I, I wish I would have, uh, you know, drank more of that Kool-Aid myself because, you know, I'm not going to lie, but there were times when I was just sort of sitting back and like, okay, great. So this is now somehow it's going to happen, but it's not, you always have to, um, stay on top of it. And the, and the most important thing is not talent. It's connections. It's networking. It's knowing people. It's talking to people. It's staying on people's minds. It's, reminding them that you exist you know if uh, if the best agency producer when you talk to him at a party but once he's back at his desk you know four weeks later and he's got a hundred reels to look at you know he's he's something has to make him remember you and and that's the trick you know that's very important you can you can make impressions you know through a number of ways you know i mean there are obviously it's just sort of there's a social circle as well, you know. There's, there are the parties and the the uh, the industry parties, the agency parties, and you know, getting to know creatives, young creatives. If you meet a young creative who's just gotten hired at an agency, you know, you want to be met, make friends with him because in two years he might be you know a full fledged copywriter, and then three years later he might be uh, an associate creative director, you know, and that's you know, four or five years is nothing in that time frame. And all of a sudden, you know, he can give you jobs. I still get calls from creatives, you know, from Europe that I've, that I met like 10, 11, 12 years ago, um, when they were starting out and, and now they are in positions where they have a little bit more power and, and they, you know, they'll, they remember, but 
that's really the ultimately the most important thing is networking, which is access. You know, it's the same. It's like having access to people, and um, you have to have the good work. But there are a lot of people who have that, um, and and then it becomes about just getting your name out. You know, pushing your brand and networking, networking. And I've heard directors talk a lot about the the importance of um, I, I don't know if this still exists, but uh, of making sure your spots uh, when you're putting together a reel, making sure your spots are going to be exactly thirty seconds or exactly one minute in your in your spec reel in order to show that you can adhere to the uh, you know the exact amount of time you'll have for a, a broadcast spot. Uh, is that is that something that's still important, or is that not as 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 important as lengths are kind of all over the place? It seems like with a lot of uh, commercials, especially if, if they're going to be online. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think that's very important. I mean, you don't want to, you know, have four two minute spots on your reel. I would say, but if the spot is thirty two seconds, no one's going to sit there with a stopwatch. You know, I mean, that's just you. I, I don't think that's. Um, I mean, it, that, that'd be like saying, look, if you have a car spec, you better have all the legal fine print, you know, in the back. The disclaimers, like, no, you don't, you know, because it looks like shit. So why would you put that on there? So it's like, you know, just make it two seconds longer or five seconds longer, whatever works, because no one is going to sit there and, and, and stop it. Um, you know, if, if someone says, honestly, if, if there's an agency meeting and they're looking at reels and someone says, yeah, you know, all his spots are like five, six seconds over, I don't know if you can really do it, then, then they're just trying to find an argument not to hire you. Because that's just BS, you know. I mean, then they have their mind made up and set on someone else, and you, know, you might as well, you know, that's that's not worth it. When you're bidding for a job and you get a script or a, a series of storyboards, uh, you know, something that tells you the basic idea of the commercial, what what are you able to bring to that when you're pitching yourself as a director for that spot? It, it depends on uh, each project. Sometimes things are very much set. Sometimes they're very open. Now. Um, the the way you know the way it works is that an, an agency obviously writes you know twenty different spots and then they show five of them to the client and the client signs off on one so already the client has sort of greenlit one spot which means that the agency um, you know has a has a specific thing that they sold to the client so they can't go back and then sell them something completely different if you have another idea right. So you're under a constraint right there that you, you know, things that, that you have no idea about what happened before. Um, but sometimes, you know, they, they, have a, they have sort of a rough idea and, uh, and then you're expected to come up with ideas. And there are a few different strategies for that, which I can say, you know, talk about in a second. But to, to get back, when, when you get a storyboard that is... Uh, you know, it has like 12 frames that are, that are illustrated very nicely and in color. And it's, you can see that this is something um, that the agency paid money for to be able to go and present to the client so the client would buy it. In a situation like that, you are more limited than in a situation when all you get is a script that is written out and it says like, so there's a guy, you know, and... Um, he, he walks down the street and there's some sort of sign floating behind him and it says this and then he gets on the bus and the sign kind of changes and it says this. And 
already you know, oh, they're looking for a solution, right? They're looking, they, they have an idea, but they don't know how to do it. And they're looking for the director, to the director for a solution. Unfortunately, a lot of that happens. A lot of agencies, you know, have sort of a rough idea and then they look for directors to actually make it work, which they shouldn't, but they do. So, so there are different degrees of, um, you know, how much input you have. And sometimes they will say, we're looking for your input. We want your input. We want your ideas. And uh, sometimes they will just talk about what they want. And then that's sort of a, a hint that, you know, they, they don't expect you to change it much. And then maybe, you know, you have one really good idea that, that adds something. It doesn't change anything, but it adds something. And it makes their spot better. That's great. So, so let, let, me, let me talk about that because um, I, I, ideally the agency is not fishing for ideas um, because I, I find that to be very unprofessional. You know, it's like we're not paid to come up with the ideas they are. Um, so they should come you know, with good ideas to us and then we can make them better and come up with new ideas as well. But don't come to us with like a half a concept and then expect us to you know, complete it. Um, but it, 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 there's, a, there's an other element that you have to keep in mind and that is who you're bidding against. So if you can, you should find out who else you're bidding. And if you're a new director, you know, you have to ask yourself, why are you being bid on this job? Um, is it because they don't have any money or is it because they like your work and they want to give you a shot? Um, so let's say, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's like a, your new director and it's like $120,000 job and they're bidding like two or three fairly new guys. Right. So that's a lot more of an even playing field, but let's, let's say all of a sudden you bid like a $600,000 job and, uh, the other two guys they're bidding are like super established directors. So you're clearly the underdog. You're like, oh, this kid is sort of interesting, but, um, you know, certainly not the safety candidate. So you ask yourself, why am I in this bid? And the answer is, oh, because they like what I did and there's, they see something and, and maybe they, you know, they think I can come up with something really interesting. So in a situation like that, that's when you go and you give them a lot of ideas. And you get, and you, because the only way you're going to get in is, with with a with a great idea, so so then then you change more and, and you you just bring more to the table and you don't play it safe. You have to be kind of like sort of like a guerrilla, you know. You have to come in and be like, you know, do something not outrageous but something that is unexpected, that is you know fresh, that they like, that is creative. Whereas if you're an established guy, you know, then they're not necessarily looking coming to you because of your revolutionary ideas, but they come to you because they feel safe with you. And because you have a solid vision that they can trust and, you know, you do good work. So, so you have to look at it from a strategic point of view, who else is in the race and how am I, you know, how am I placed in that whole setup? Um, am I the unorthodox candidate that, you know, am I going to have to attack more or am I more in a def defending position in a way? And that's really important to think about. I'm sure there's uh, there's many concepts that come across your your desk that um, that you're not interested in that, that don't appeal to you. 
would you ever put in a uh, a bid for a concept like that? Um, and if you um, if you don't like the concept, are you able to to just kind of power through or or find elements that you you do like about it and kind of cling on to those? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, in unfortunately, there are lots of concepts that aren't like very interesting. So it's it's kind of like. You know, I, I wish, obviously, we all wish we had the luxury to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, if you, if it's a good job and, uh, you know, I mean, let's face it, something has to pay the bills. So if, if, if you know, if you get a, a job for a concept you don't really, you're not really fond of, but, you know, you're going to make 50 grand on it for, you know, two weeks of work, you know, you can probably take that bullet. Um, it's not too bad. So, yeah, you go and you find something that you like. You try to add something that you like, or uh, you know, the, the process in itself can be great fun. I mean, I love being on sets. You know, I love you know almost everything about it. I mean, I love walking into a location and just saying, okay, so we'll paint this wall green, and we'll we'll do this, and we'll move all the furniture out, put our own furniture, and just sort of like the coming in and like doing stuff. I find very fascinating, you know, and saying, like, let's shut down this whole block and let's, you know, you know, have these cars come down here. And I mean, it's just, it's great. And you, you're and also work, walking into a stage, you know, on the sound stage, it's completely empty and you're just like, okay, so uh, let's build the set right here and blah, blah, blah. And you're creating this whole world. There's fun in that. And, um, and working with people on the crew and just, you know, all of that, it's, it's, that's something you can still find, you know, find some fun in. I mean, if it, it sometimes obviously it does get very tedious, and especially if they're, you know, if the agency and the client sort of have very specific ideas and that you don't really like, and you know, but you can obviously, you know, choose to fight them or walk off, or you can just, you know, shut up and take the money. And that's, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. that. You know, it's, it's, yes, we're artists, but, you know, we're also craftsmen and it's also a job and it enables us to, you know, do other things. You know, if you do one of those, I mean, you know, you ask yourself if you, if, if you got one of those jobs and you, you know, you'd be able to make 50 grand in two weeks and then, you know, I, a lot of us don't have to work for the rest of the year on that money. So that's great. So, I mean, how, where else can you do that, you know? And so, what is a typical uh, director's salary? Uh, just a, kind of an average um, idea. You know, I think the average is probably somewhere around twelve to fifteen thousand per shooting day right now. But that's just a guess. It's not. It's not that easy to find that out. But just judging by the budgets, that's usually the budget. You know, on a on a one day shoot. Um, you can say about 10% of the budget um, would be the director's fee. So if like, you have like a $120,000, $150,000 job, then yeah, you you know that's the fee. And as soon as you have like a $400,000 job, that means you have you know at least at least two, if not three, shooting days. So then you know it's right around that somewhere, like thirty, forty thousand dollars. But then you know there are guys who who get you know forty grand per shooting day. Um, I mean, there are guys that are way more expensive than that. So um, when you're starting out, you can probably expect to be, I don't know, maybe 
if if it's a fifty thousand dollar budget, you know they're probably going to pay you six, something like that. You know, um, maybe you you know maybe you can start at eight thousand a day. So it's you know those are very fluid numbers. It depends on the markets. It depends on the budget. Depends on the production company. But you know that's a that's a good. I think the uh, the DGA minimum is like seventy five hundred now, which you know hardly anyone works for. Right. Uh, so actually, that's an interesting point, though. When when you're uh, when you're out when you just get out of school and you sign with a production company, you have to become a, a DGA member, typically, right? Well, you can you have I think ten shooting days before you have to join. So what they do is they um, they pay. All the all the fees, but they but you don't have to actually join the union. And once you hit those ten days, then then you have to join the union. And if you sign with the company, then they're supposed to pay the signing fees if they're you know a good company. I mean that's again something to talk about when you sign with a company. You want to be like they're signatories, so they have to put you into the union, and so they're supposed to pay for it. Um, the same goes if you have, need like work visas or anything like that, you know, usually the company has to pay for that. So, so yeah, but you have, you have a certain leeway. Uh, and, and, and also there are some new rules about the online stuff and the lower budget stuff that, you know, where they don't have to pay um, fees and any of that stuff to the, to the guilds just so it's easier for people to work in that. Because um, obviously the the guild knows that it's not that easy to get started in it. So how involved are you typically in editing the uh, the spots you direct? I am typically very involved. One because I started out as an editor. Actually, my mom has been an editor all her life. Uh, I, I kind of grew up next to a Steenbeck editing table. What kind of stuff did she edit? She worked for a, a German TV station, and she, you know, she learned in the fifties, and so she started out on film, and then she did all kinds of just TV stuff, features like what they call like sixty minute, like sixty sixty, or I'm sorry, what is it, twenty twenty, and sixty minutes, like th- those kinds of things, and then news and sports, and you know, all variety stuff, um, and then uh, you know, she she did the transfer to uh, nonlinear editing, and then. When she turned 60, she had to go and learn computers, and she learned the Avid and Final Cut Pro, which is great. And now she's retired, but she's been doing it all her life. And then I, I either just knew it from a very young age on. It's, it was I kind of learned it like a language, quite literally. So I worked as an editor, as a sound editor while I was in college. So I'm typically very involved in the editing process just because um, I see things edited before I shoot them, and I know what I want. And... Um, I'm also, you know, like nowadays, what I, what I actually, cause I actually did this the other day on a shoot, this was in, in, uh, in Kiev, um, on the location scout, no, I'm sorry, on the, on the tech scout, I, I took my, uh, DSLR and we shot the whole commercial. And then back in the office, I, ed- I downloaded it and I had it edited in like half an hour. And I sat with the creative director and, you know, we talked about it and we dropped two or three shots that we thought we didn't need. So we, we, we made the whole, you know, it's like what Hitchcock said, you know, we, we made a wonderful movie. Now we just have to go shoot it. 
it's all in the prepping, you know. So, um, you know, we edit on airplanes now on the way back uh, on our laptops, and it's just the way it is. And so I'm, I'm usually very involved because of the type of work that I do, you know, the type of storytelling work, obviously. Um, it, when, if you're shooting car running footage or fashion or beauty stuff, it's, you're not involved in the editing because they just, you know, uh, spend month, months looking at, at frame by frame to see if everything is perfect and which is different. Do you think growing up around that, uh, was that a, a factor in you wanting to do this? Oh, definitely. I mean, it was a huge, huge factor. I, you know, uh, I, as I said, you know, grew up next to an editing table, but then I also started working at the TV station as a sort of a summer job. And then later, just while I was at school, sort of as a job. So I was a cable puller, you know, I did tons of live television. I was a, an assistant for sound and steady cam and like camera assistant. And I, I, and that's why I really learned all the little jobs you can do. So I knew that world in and out and, um, you know, pretty much knew that I didn't want to stay in, in Germany doing it. I wanted to, you know, come here and, and be a director. So that was, that certainly played a big part in it. Yeah. What differences have you found in um, in production in Germany as opposed to the U.S.? Well, it's it's now it's now not as different anymore. But it, back in the day, you know, it it was it was just a lot more encrusted in Germany, and here there was a lot more opportunity. Um, but now, when you shoot on when you work in commercials, now you can go pretty much anywhere in the world, and you can find a really good crew and you can find, you know, usually the equipment you need and everything kind of works along the same lines. Now, the huge difference is that in LA, I mean, nothing is like LA, you know, LA, you can find anything at any time and any piece of equipment, you can have it, you know, in a couple of hours can be there. Uh, if you cast, if you want, you know, one eyed kids, then you put out a, a, a casting call and the next day you have 200 um, and, and you have a depth of crews of knowledge that is just fantastic. If you go and you shoot in, um, you know, let's, let's say like we, are we just shot in, in Kiev, in Kiev you maybe have maybe three good commercial crews. And if there are three projects going on at the same time, you just won't find anyone who knows what they're doing. So, and, and there are places where it's worse. You know, you have like literally one, maybe, maybe two good crews that can actually, you know, do a commercial. Um, and, and that's it. So, <clears throat> excuse me, but that's obviously Los Angeles, New York, and a lot of those places. And then, you know, London and Paris and all the big places, it's, it's all pretty much the same now. The Puma spot that you did recently is, is really, um, really powerful with uh, with some nice uh, like nighttime documentary like uh, cinematography uh -huh. uh, can you talk a bit about that that spot how that came about and what went into the uh, the production of it um, that spot is this is actually a, a real event um, this group is called the wolf pack and they ride here in Los Angeles and this was the the Los Angeles marathon and they closed down the route at 3 a.m. in the morning and this wolf pack does a sort of an illegal, unlicensed, unauthorized race on it because you can go from downtown all the way to the ocean on a closed course. And so, um, 
what we did is we just said, let's just shoot this. And um, we had, I think, four cameras. We had a helicopter lined up, but it, it, there were some issues. It couldn't fly because um, it was raining that night. And uh, this was pretty much all 5D. Yeah, they were all 5Ds. Um, and so we had, I think, three or four, four cameras. Uh, and and uh, we had sort of a planned out... Uh, I, I was I was actually in the motorcycle, um, with a you know sidecar motorcycle, and then the other three cameras were in cars, and they had, you know, we had picked spots up front where they would shoot, and then as soon as the group came by, they would pack up and go to the next spot and hopefully beat them there, um, and then we had a couple of helmet cameras which we didn't utilize very much, but. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that was the setup. We basically, I took all the camera people and to each spot and told them the shot that I wanted and told them to get whatever else they thought was interesting. Um, yeah, and that was it. The, uh, St. Uh, Lucia tourism spot that's on your website is, is interesting in that, uh, there's a lot of shots in it that are out of focus. Is, is mm -hmm. that, uh, how did that stylistic choice uh, come about for you? It's just a look that I really enjoy and I haven't done it in, a long time so um, it's obviously a little more artsy and uh, but I just like the poetic the poetic feel of it and the sort of I always think that out of focus communicates um, relaxation as well there's a dreaminess to it yeah, there's a dreaminess to it and it's sort of like you don't have to focus and concentrate on something you just kind of you can kind of let go and uh, you know so that it, it translates sort of in a, in a soft focus for me. It's like you don't have to strain your eyes to get something into focus. You just kind of like let it go a little bit. So Was that kind of a risky thing to, uh, to, to uh, sell the client on? No, that's, I mean, that's what you say. It's like this is going to be very flary and, you know, into the sun and very uh, artistic and out of focus and handheld and, you know, sort of partially framed found footage. You know, use all those words to to communicate that. Um, and do you show them examples of that? Do you have? Oh like yeah, a yeah. You, you in the treatment, you show them if you can. You know, and that's a blessing and a curse. You don't want to overdo it, but you want to be like, okay, this is. I'm kind of going for this, and I'm kind of going for that. And uh, you want to make sure you don't, you know, give them the wrong wrong impression on anything or or. or, or you know, have them look at one image and be like, oh, no, we can't have that. And then you have to backtrack and explain. But it's not really going to be like that, you know. So images can be very helpful um, when it comes to explaining visual concepts, like out of focus. Because you're right. Some clients are like, we can't have anything out of focus. We're paying for in focus. So... So, and how do you find those images? Do you just research? Uh, do you have an assistant doing that, or are you researching, uh, kind of looking around for for something that fits your vision? There's usually um, we have researchers that that do that. I tend to also look um, myself, just because it's part of my creative process. Is to just sort of, um, you know, look at images and, and and click through images. The the researchers do a lot of the um, more specific searching when we go okay we need a beach with a with palm trees you know as a location then they will go and find you 400 pictures of beaches of palm trees but if it's something where you know where I'm, where I'm looking for a feeling or a mood that you can't describe to a researcher then you just want to go look at it yourself and just be 
you know, inspired by it too, because it's, you know, there's some great photography out there and it's visual stuff. So, you know, it's wonderful to look at these things and just sort of, it's part of the, part of the journey in a way. Also at videos, by the way. I mean, if you, I love Vimeo. I mean, there's so much fantastic stuff in Vimeo. It's unbelievable. All right, Thomas, that, that about does it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ron. I enjoyed it very much. And that was the wonderful Thomas Richter, the author of 30 Second Storyteller, which you can buy through his website, thomasrichter.net. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way. Please put Spodcast in your subject matter. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on SwayProductions.com. This is Ron Small saying goodbye. Goodbye.